Thanks for joining us for today's message. We are always so encouraged to hear how God is working through this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God has worked in your life, then let us know by sending us an email to mystory@timberlakechurch.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by giving online at timberlakechurch.com slash give. Enjoy the message. It's always a pleasure to be able to bring God's word. And if you're watching online or in the room, it's always great to worship with you. We're going to close out our series, Relational Vampires, today. And uh, I'm going to just encourage you to go ahead and take out the, the notes that are provided to you or go ahead and take out your phone. Uh, hopefully you've already downloaded our app. You can take notes right there in the app uh, so you don't have to write anything if you don't want to. Uh, but here, here's one of the things I, I would like for us to do as we kind of dive into this week. And there's going to be a lot of information and I, I, I hope it really is helpful to you. But more than anything, I, don't, I want it to be helpful, but I want it to be impactful. And it's not because I'm a communicator or a teacher or a preacher or whatever you call the person who gets in front of you. It's because it really does hit home for many of us. A lot of these issues we've been talking about, week one was about dealing with needy people. Uh, week two was dealing with critical people. Week three was about uh, people who are, who are uh, hyper-religious or maybe even hyper, uh, hypocritical, where they, they, they talk one way, they live another, uh, and how, that is, how does that impact us? The truth is, in our modern-day culture, uh, it's easy to villainize somebody else uh, because we don't see eye-to-eye on something. I mean, just go on social media. My goodness. I just have to stop doing it for a while. I actually had a friend this week who posted, and uh, she said, yes, I'm alive. I just don't want to talk to any of you right now. <laughs> and uh, and, and, and I, I, I appreciate what she's saying because for a lot of us, it's true. There's just somebody disagrees with us and it causes discord, but it doesn't have to be that way. What is our response? If you are a Christ follower, what's our response? And if you're not a Christ follower and you're in the room, we're still going to talk about things that can really impact you and how we deal with people. But we're going to really take it from a vantage point of what, how would Jesus handle these things and what does it look like? However, before we dive into God's Word, I want to take a few minutes and really level the playing field. Because sometimes we're not very intentional with our language. Uh, you ever get in an argument with your spouse or at work or with your, your kids or your parents or a sibling or a partner uh, in business? And you, we use language that's uh, just kind of super sensitive. And we get sensitive and so we, we react and we say things. And it's really easy to look at somebody as we talk about controlling people this week and just look at them and say, you're controlling. Like, I can't believe my mom and dad are so controlling. They want to know everything I do and where I go, and I have to have my phone on, and I have to have this, and I, I should be my own person. No, you're 13 years old. They're just being responsible. You know, not every person who is against you, per se, is controlling or is your enemy. Sometimes we just want things our way. And I really want us to have a, a, a time in God's Word where we're really challenging ourselves as much as we want to challenge those people that, are in our, that we're in relationship with. And it's really easy to point the finger at somebody else. It's not so easy to take those same questions and the same attributes we're going to talk about and ask ourselves the question, am I part of the problem? Okay? So, as I was doing research for this message, and I was getting ready, and we talked about controlling people and control freaks. What does this look like? Uh, I, read, I read some articles in some medical journals. I just went online. I did a little bit of everything. And I started keeping track of all the characteristics of somebody who's a controlling person or a control freak. 
And I wrote the list, and you, you add them all up. It was a couple of pages of, of just people's ideas of what they are. And what I wanted to do is not bring to you something that was in one medical journal or one person's article. I wanted to bring you a compilation. What is the common thread between all these articles? And out of all the things that were listed, there were only five that I found that were pretty much in every article I read. And they were, they were used in, in different, they were, they, were, they were worded differently, but they were all saying the same thing. So I'm going to give you those five so we can have a, a working rubric that we're all on the same page as we talk about controlling people, all right? So here are those characteristics of controlling people. Go ahead and write them down uh, if you are taking notes. Number one, usually they have a larger-than-life demeanor. A larger-than-life demeanor. Now, if you married somebody very gregarious, don't think they're controlling. They just might have a big personality, and that's okay, okay? What I mean by larger-than-life demeanor, it means they project an image that they can't fully back up. It's, it's you go on that first date with that girl in college, and she shows up, and you're like, oh my goodness, she's just so beautiful. And you show up unexpectedly, and she doesn't have the eyelashes on, and she doesn't have the hair extensions, and she looks the way she looks. And that's totally fine. But for some of us, we project this image that we can't really back up. It's if the guy takes you out on a first date, and he whines and dines you, and spends hundreds of dollars, but the truth is, he emptied out his bank account to impress you. What happens is, he can't live that life for you. Or you're getting recruited by a company and they spend thousands of dollars and they take you to a Seahawks game and they wine and dine you and they give you a moving expense and they really set you up, but you go work for the company and you're six months in like, what did I do? Maybe you're the boss who does that for other people. Maybe you wine and dine people because as long as you get them there, they're yours. Right? This larger-than-life demeanor is one of the characteristics. Number, number two is this. They get frustrated with normal, everyday questions. You ever had a conversation with somebody, and you're just trying to have a normal conversation, and they have this weird reaction to just a normal question? Just, maybe they don't have enough emotional intelligence. Maybe they're just maybe a little off a little bit. But you're like, you're talking to them, and you're like, hey, so, uh, you know, what did you do this weekend? I don't know why. No, I'm just wondering what you did this weekend. Or are you talking to your spouse? Hey, who'd you have lunch with today? I'm not cheating on you. I didn't say you were cheating on me. I just want to know who you had lunch with today. Like, they freak out over the little things. My kids do this all the time. I mean, uh, they, uh, and, and they do control my life, which is true. But uh, they, they do, like, what is wrong with kids? Are they allergic to refilling the toilet paper? I mean, I love going to some of your houses, and you have a really nice house, a really good property. And I go to your house, and I'm like, oh, they have the same problem I do. They have a teenager who doesn't know how to refill the toilet paper. But what is, what is it? But I, I'll ask them, hey, can you take out the trash? I told you I was going to do it, Dad, and I had to do it. And they'll tell me this big, long reason why they didn't take out the trash. And I was like, I just was wondering if you're going to take out the trash. You ever had that conversation with somebody? And they freak out over just normal, everyday questions. Why do they do that? It's a defensive posture. It's, I may be hiding something. I may not be hiding something, but why are you questioning me? They don't like questions. Number three, they criticize others to make a point. And the point is that they're right and the other people are wrong. Ever talking to your boss and that other company? Man, they don't know what they're doing. If they only did this and this and this, and then you're thinking, we don't even do this and this and this. But they criticize everybody else. Why? 
because it's a, it's a defensive posture of, I want people to think we are the best company. We're the best at this product. We are the best at customer service. And they do it at the expense of others. Number four, they don't take no for an answer. And some of you are thinking, what's wrong with that? That's how you get business done. That's how you build a business. That's how you move up the ranks. Yeah, but we're talking about relationships here. We're talking about interworking relationships. And some of you do have those relationships at work. And, but most of us outside of work, we're trying to have a relationship with people. And when they say no, and it becomes fully toxic, what does that mean? It means in a relationship, it's a living, breathing entity. Your marriage, your, your relationship with your children, with your, with your own parents, with your brothers, your sisters, your, par- your business partner. It's a breathing relationship. And there's highs and there's lows. And there's yeses and there's no's. And that rhymes. And I didn't mean to. But it's just one of those things where sometimes you get to say yes. Sometimes you have to tell the other person their idea was better than yours. And if you're in a relationship with somebody who's always right, it can wear on you. When was the last time you told your boss that they had a great idea? Even if they don't treat you well. When was the last time, if you're the boss, you told one of your employees, the ones that you can't stand, that they had a great idea? When was the last time you told your husband or wife, you told your kids, hey, that was a good call? Sometimes other people have the best idea. And there's not one person in this room or that I know, period, that always has the right answer. But I know a lot of people who think they do. And so do you. They don't take no for an answer. They push their way through. And the last one is, this one's a tough one because it, it really can become toxic. And then it can become violent. And, uh, and, I, and I want you to know that if you deal with this issue, this jealousy issue in a personal relationship, and you do feel like something toxic is happening and you need some help, Come find one of the pastors. Let's help you walk through that. Even though most of us aren't in that situation, there's some who are. Because that jealousy takes root and people will do whatever. Why? To control the situation. To control a person. To control a marriage. To control the context. I found this quote, and it wasn't attributed to anybody, but I want to make sure you know I I didn't write it. And it said this, A person with an obsessive need to exercise control over themselves others, and any situation close to them. That's a control freak. And it was the best definition I could find, but it wasn't attributed to anybody. But the truth is, a control freak wants to control anything that has to do with them, and you, and anything between you, and around them. And then one I can attribute is Dr. Les Perot. He's at SPU here in Seattle, uh, also a fellow at uh, University of Washington, I believe. And he says this about control freaks. Control freaks are people who care more than you do about something and won't stop at being pushy to get their way. You ever been talking to somebody and uh, they, they're trying to convince you that they're right about something and then you don't even care if they're right? Like, I don't care. But it's not even good enough you give in. They want to hear you say that they're right. And and usually a control freak, it's not good enough just to get their way. Do you think like I believe? Now, now, do do you understand why I made that decision? Not really, but we'll go with it anyway. No, no, no. And they'll keep talking for 30 more minutes, re-explaining it until I can say or you can say that they were right, that their thought process was right, not just the outcome. See, all of these characteristics are what line up for somebody who could be controlling. 
And if you find yourself in this situation or you've seen those attributes and you're thinking, wow, I might be the person, then this message is for us. So it leads to the question, how did we get here? Ever been talking to somebody and you're wondering, how did I get myself into this conversation? Why am I even dealing with this right now? Like, how did I let myself, how did I let myself get into this situation? Talked to several families who've moved back to the Seattle area after moving to the East Coast or Southern California or Texas. And and they're like, man, we went, it was good for a while, and then it was not what they said it was going to be, so we might as well go back home and figure it out back in Seattle. Because you sit down and you wonder, how did I get here? How did I allow myself, an educated, smart person, to be controlled by anybody? Because we're people. And and, and the truth is, if we're not careful, we can carry guilt and shame for allowing ourselves to be in a situation like this. I've talked to many parents in our church and outside of our church who feel like because maybe their son or daughter... um, is having abuse issues or having, a, you know, a problem with drugs or alcohol, they feel their life is now controlled as well by the, by the drugs, by the alcohol. And I got to tell you, I was a kid who did that. And I shared that last week with our church. I put my parents through years of feeling like their life was on lockdown. And I guarantee my parents had to sit back and cry and just be exhausted and ask themselves, how did we... Two educated people, smart people who impact thousands of people. How did we let a 16-year-old control our life? Because it can happen to any of us. Why? Because you have to let people close enough to you in order for them to be in position to control your life. So how did Jesus respond to controlling people? How did, who did Jesus have that was in his inner circle that would be close enough to even want to try to control the Savior of the world? And the answer is the person who built the church, Peter. Peter wanted things his way. And Jesus has this moment, this confrontation with Peter that is documented in Matthew. And we're going to read it together. And when you think about it logically, you cannot believe this conversation took place. But it goes like this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Stop right there. So Jesus takes his disciples, and he brings them close, and he says, I'm going to unfold the plan. I left heaven, came to earth, took on flesh, took on a human form, and here's what's about to happen. I'm about to be killed, and I'm going to be raised again three days later. He's letting his inner circle know the why behind what he's about to do. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Let's get the context here. The Savior of the world... A disciple, the teacher, the student. And the student pulls aside the teacher and says, this is not going to happen. I'm not going to let this happen. It was never really up for debate, except for Peter was trying to control the situation. Now, he may have had good intentions. 
And many people do have good intentions. But the way he went about it causes, causes a stir in Jesus. And Jesus responds in a way that we don't see a lot of in Scripture. But he's very firm with his response. And here's what he says. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He tells the guy who's about to build the church that has impacted our lives and why we're even here, he calls him Satan. Now, is he literally calling him devil? No. What he is saying is, I am rebuking you, Peter, because the plan you want to have goes, is counterintuitive and goes against the plan of God. And he's trying to get his attention. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. That word stumbling block, it's a moment of transparency for Jesus. For Jesus to be able to look at Peter and say, you might cause me to stumble. This is the perfect Savior. He's come to be the perfect sacrifice, and yet he looks at Peter and says, you might cause me to stumble? I'll give you a more, a more modern example. Maybe you have a friend. I mean, this is pretty prevalent in our area. You have a friend who maybe is trying to not drink anymore. Maybe they've battled alcohol abuse. And uh, maybe their spouse or maybe they're single. And you're, you've decided to take it upon yourself to throw them a birthday party. Hey, I want to invite you. I'm going to have people over. We're going to celebrate your birthday party. And then they show up and you have filled the house with liquor. And you're trying to honor a person no longer wanting to drink and struggling with alcohol, and yet you took it upon yourself to think it's a good idea to fill the house with alcohol. Now you have good intentions. You're trying to throw the biggest, baddest party for your friend you're trying to honor. At the same time, you have become a stumbling block for the person you say you care about. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, Peter, you say you care about me, but you are trying to bring a double-mindedness, you're trying to distract me from my true purpose. And he says this, You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Logic. He's like, this isn't logical. This is subversive to the culture we live in. He says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, so he takes Peter, he turns over to his disciples, and now he's talking to the group again, and he says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Serving Jesus, trying to be like Jesus, learning from Jesus is subversive. You want to find the life, but you have to lose it first. And that can be hard for us. So what are the two things that we see Jesus do here? Number one, he confronts the actions of Peter. He confronts the actions of Peter. He steps in and he says, I'm not going to let you do this. I'm going to confront you. And when we're dealing with controlling people, it takes communication. And most times, what do we want to do when somebody's trying to control us? We want to just get out of the situation. We just want to be done with it. We just don't want to deal with them anymore. We'd rather leave the office without talking to them. Let me go home. Let me relax. Let me just watch the game. I'll come back tomorrow at full strength and we'll do this again. Yet it happens over and over again without communication. And Jesus confronts Peter with words. And some of you might say, well, no, I, I communicate really clear to my husband. My husband knows when I'm not happy. Really? How, what have you done? Well, I withhold sex. 
No, that's not really clear communication. I mean, it's sending a signal, that's for sure. But it's not communication. Oh, my husband knows I'm mad at him because I don't talk to him for a couple days. Uh, that's the opposite of communication. It's another signal. We send these smoke signals to these people in our relationships, and we don't actually communicate. I don't know why my wife's mad. She knew that big game. She knew that big game was coming, and she knew it was important. Did you tell her? No, but she knows. I circled it on the calendar. Did you communicate to your wife that you plan on buying an airplane ticket with five of your friends and flying across the country to watch that team? No, but she knows how much my team matters to me. Communication, people. It's like you tell your two-year-old, use your words. Use your words. And what do we do as guys? We grunt. Grunting does not count. My wife will say, hey, I asked you, do you want this for dinner? I said yes. No, you said, uh. That's not yes. That's an uh. It's like ne Neanderthal never leaves us, right? That's not clear communication. Jesus doesn't say, uh, I don't know, Peter. Hmm? I don't know. Whatever. What do you think, Peter? He didn't say, oh, we'll just wait. He didn't go, uh. <laughs> he looked at Peter and said, get behind me. Now, I'm not giving you permission to look at your husband or your wife and say, get behind me, Satan. That's up to you. If you use that language, that's on you. Okay? Don't quote that in your next argument. Because <laughs> I can just see somebody doing that. Pastor Carl said, get behind me, Satan. And uh, we'll just leave it there. He confronts him. He uses language. What's the second thing he, do? he does? He gently reminds those close to him of what really matters. After he talks to Peter, he says, here's what matters. We have to walk humbly, and we have to lose our life in order to gain it. Well, who wants to hear that? Nobody. When you're complaining about your boss, and you go talk to one of your friends, do you really want your friend to say, hey, you know, you might be part of the problem? No, you want your friend just to be in your corner. You want your friend to say, oh, I know, man, they're horrible. I hear about them in my department, too. That makes you feel good about yourself. Does it fix the situation? No. You know what it does? It actually makes the situation more toxic, and that part is your fault. Think about that. He reminds them of what matters. So what's our mindset? What's our mindset? What should the attributes be that we do have if we're going to be like Christ, interacting with people that are toxic, especially those who are controlling? We're going to go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 8. Then we're going to talk about a few things, and we'll close out. Here, so here we go. Philippians 2. Verse 2 through 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to, in his own, to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, and even death on a cross. Jesus... Not only humbled himself, but humbled himself to the point where he says, if I'm going to ask you to, to lose your life to gain one, then I have to be willing to lose my life so that others can gain life. 
What are the attributes we should have? Number one, we got to check our own heart and motives. Check your own heart and motives. And the question there is, am I the one trying to control the situation? Am I really the one being controlling in the situation? Am I the one because I've been hurt, because I've been beaten down, because my boss has been treating me, because my, my wife has mistreated me, because my husband's mistreated me, because my parents, because my siblings, whatever the situation you're dealing with, because we're so beaten down, are there times that we try to take the reins and bring the control, and now we've made it worse? We have to check our heart. King David said this. He said, God, search my heart. Is there any wickedness in me? And you want to know the context of when he said that? When he was being sought out so they could kill him. He was the victim. He was the one being sought to be killed by King Saul. And yet, when he was hiding in a cave, he stopped and he said, God, search my heart. Is there something wrong with me? How many times is somebody coming after us? How many times do we stop and actually ask God to search our heart? I'm not saying it's all your fault, but have we added to the matter? Number, t- number two, we have to see the other person as valuable. We have to see that person as valuable. And here's the question. What can I do to serve them in a healthy way? I've been in situations before where I, I had a boss that was just god-awful. I mean, it was bad. And um, you're like, well, you work for a church. Yeah, he's still a person. Right? We're people. We have flaws. I had flaws. They had flaws. And I remember having this, this thought, how can I make them better? And at the time, I was about 23 or 24, and I, and I remember thinking this. If I make them look good, how are they going to learn how bad of a person they are? If I make the department look good, who's going to get the bigger raise? Well, guess what? Now I'm withholding. And now I'm being unhealthy instead of adding health to an unhealthy situation. What can I do? How do I lead up, using a business term, how do I lead up to help my boss, to help my, my spouse, to help my parents? And you can only do that if you see them as valuable because they might not be valuable to you, but can you truly understand in your heart of hearts that they're still valuable to God? Number three, are we willing to accept the challenge of walking in humility. And here's the question, right there in your notes. Am I treating them better than they ought to be treated? Are you just returning the favor when you interact with them? Or are you treating them better? Are you celebrating them? When everybody pitches in to, for a birthday gift, are you withholding the $5 because you're trying to prove a point? They're going to get the gift anyway. You might as well participate. Put your name on the card. It's a healthy approach. And what we try to do is when we're hurt and somebody has humiliated us and somebody has, brought, has, has humbled us, it can be tough for us to walk in even more humility. And yet we're asked to do this. And it's not easy. It's not easy. And then number four, are we willing to pay the price to do what's right? Are you willing to pay the price to do what's right? I was talking to somebody after the last service and uh, I got to this point, and, and her and her husband stopped me, and they said, Pastor Carlos, we own our own business. And in the message, we decided there was a client that is basically locking down our entire operation. And it wasn't worth it. But were we willing to lose them as a client so that we can move forward as a business? 
And we just realized, what are we doing? We have said for a year, we're not willing to pay the price to move on. And today we decided we are. Are you willing to pay the price? I was talking to a student a few years ago. His name is Rudy. And uh, his, his dad had a big church, tens, ten, about 10,000 people. And I was doing a conference at their church. And we're in the green room. He says, Pastor Carlos, I, um, um, I want you to know that I really don't want to be the next pastor of this church. And I don't know why he was telling me this. I just felt like he could be vulnerable with me. And I said, well, if you don't want to be the next pastor of this church, I guarantee the people of this church don't want you to be their pastor. So what do you want to do? I want to be an artist. Well, what do you want to do? I, I, want to be, I want to write music, and, and I just want to play. And I just feel passionate about it. I said, well, do you want to be a worship leader? He goes, no, I just want to be an artist. I want to do my thing. I want to travel. I said, great, so what's stopping you? Well, you know, it's just like I, I'm just kind of scared. What are you scared of? If you know for sure you want to be an artist, what are you scared of? You know, my dad said if I don't finish up my degree, like he's going to cut me off financially. I said, oh, you don't want to be a starving artist. Well, well, yeah. I said, I don't know one artist in the world who didn't have to pay the price. I don't know one. I don't know one who wasn't a waiter or a waitress or babysat or was a nanny or did whatever they needed to do before they made it big. And you have to be willing to pay the price. So you know what he did? He went on staff at his dad's church. And about two years later, wrote me a note saying, I don't know why I just wasted two years of my life. I'm willing to pay the price now. And he stepped out. Because sometimes we want somebody else to pay the price for us. But if you really want to move on from certain toxic relationships, you have to be willing, and I have to be willing, to pay the price. And that is not easy. Especially in a world where we want to be stable. Well, you know... If, if my department at Microsoft would just do this, man, I could make Microsoft tens of millions of dollars. Oh, really? If you're so bright, do it yourself then. Stop talking about Microsoft and how they can be better. Make them better. And if you don't want to make them better, go start your own business. Go do it. But stop talking and actually do something. Make something better. Step out. Be willing to pay the price for what you feel is right. Especially in your relationships. Be willing to pay the price to serve your family. Do what's right. Because that is what God has called us to. Close out with one more story and then we're going to continue in our worship service. Genesis chapter 26. If you ever get a chance, I know it's a, it's a lot of language. Especially if you're, if you're new to this whole Bible and church thing. It can be a lot. But Genesis 26 and 27. If you just read it as a story, like any other story you would read. Uh, it's a great story. And, and Isaac... Uh, in the story is uh, th there's a famine in the land and, and things aren't going so great. And uh, back, back in biblical times, water, a fresh water source was gold, right? I think we, we even take it for granted today. A fresh water source, how important that is. But it was gold because that's how you built wealth with, with, with cattle, with, with, with your herd. And so uh, he, he went before the king uh, he was living in a land that wasn't his own, and he opened up his dad's well from the generation before. And guess what happened? God blessed Isaac. It was amazing. But he blessed Isaac to the point that the king was jealous. So the king made Isaac leave. So he had to go and take his whole family and everything he had and start over at a new well, because you have to have a fresh water source. Guess what happened there? 
he found another enemy, and he had to go to another fresh water source. So after a few years of having to fight enemies and change wells, God finally gave him permission to go to this land all by himself, almost like he's starting his own business. And when he's there, what happens? God blesses him. And he makes an impact. And that's not the end of the story that I want us to rest on. It's this. After that, his enemies before, the ones who made him start over, the ones who made him move his family and all his belongings, those people, they came back to him and basically apologized. And here's what happened in verse 30 after they apologized. Isaac then made a feast for them and they ate and drank. He threw a party for the people who tried to destroy his life. Not just once, not twice, not three times, multiple times. He threw a party for them. Because if you're really as strong and as healthy as you say you are, or I see I am, I should be able to celebrate people who are unhealthy. If I can't do that, I'm just as unhealthy as the person who's toxic in front of me. And here's what happens. Early the next morning, which meant it was a really good party because they drank and ate all night. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. And then Isaac sent them on their way and they went away peacefully. I'm not asking you to go back to the old land. I'm not asking you to go back into your relationship with your ex-spouse. I am asking you to be the healthy person and can you celebrate them so your kids can see that you are healthy. That's what we're asking. And I know it hits home for a lot of us, but it's the truth. I'm not asking you to go back to your old job because they offered you more money and they miss you. He didn't go back into a relationship with them and move back to that land. He sent them away, but he did it peacefully with the disposition that I have peace. I know I'm blessed. I know God's with me. And if I know that, I should have no problem blessing them to move forward. But can we say that about the relationships that we have? I know it's a big challenge, and I know it's humbling, but it reminds us of Philippians chapter 2, which said, Jesus said, do nothing out of selfish ambition, even if we think we deserve it. Let's pray together. God, what do we do with all this? What do we do when we're supposed to stop blaming everybody else? What do we do when, when your word takes away the excuses for how we treat people, no matter how toxic they might be, even those who are controlling? God, give us wisdom to, for our next steps in our lives and these people that are trying to exude force over us. Thank you for listening to the Timberlake Church Podcast. Stay connected with us by visiting TimberlakeChurch.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook.